And as we come to the scriptures, please turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 will be in verses 12 through 29 this morning. And as we uh, come to the scriptures, I'll pray for us. And we again will take one of Paul's prayers, the Apostle Paul, one of his prayers, and we'll make it our own. And so let's pray this prayer from Ephesians chapter 1. Lord, we pray that you would give us spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of our glorious inheritance in the saints, and what are the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe, according to the working of your great might, that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Lord, in light of this prayer, we do ask that you would strengthen us in your word and that the glory of your gospel would amaze us, that we would continue to be in awe. So, so thanks that you're with us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of the trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, the voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And together, 
the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So the very first word in chapter 12, verse 12, is therefore, followed by some commands. So to set this up, if I were to approach you after the service, and the first thing I say to you is, therefore, you need to give me $100. You'd be like, whoa, wait a second. Slow down, like, what am I missing? And that's the question. Like, what are we missing? And so that takes us to this passage. It begins with, therefore, but it's important for us to understand the backdrop of verses 1 through 11. So in, very, in the very beginning of chapter 12, in verse 1, the author of Hebrews compares the Christian life to that of a race. He says in verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This race that is set before us. What kind of race are we in? Sometimes we need to be reminded of this. We are not in a rat race. A literal rat race is when one or more rats race against each other to a piece of cheese, right? Like chasing cheese. And that's what life can feel like at times, and Christians can get caught up in this. Chasing worldly cheese in the forms of power or status or popularity, reputation, money. But we're not called to scurry along with the world chasing cheese, so to speak. That is not the race. It's not a rat race. We're also not called to an easy sprint where we barely break a sweat. No, the author says, let us run with endurance. And this idea of an endurance race, with that comes inevitably weariness. And for the Christian, we grow weary because we are called to run with endurance But the reality is we are running in a fallen world. We are in a race, in a sinful world. And the destructive reality of sin in the world can cause us to grow weary and faint-hearted. And underneath this weariness, at times, are difficult and dark emotions At times, in a fallen world, we are angry when we are sinned against, and what we want is vengeance. We want revenge. At times, we're sad, we're grieved, even to the point at times of despair, because in a fallen world, dreams are shattered, loved ones are lost. We go through difficulties where we really struggle. We struggle with hope. We're fearful at times, because we're anxious about our own future. We may be anxious about the future of our kids, or depending on stage of life, maybe anxious about our parents and their future. These emotions, anger, grief, sadness, despair, fear, are exhausting. We can be so weary. Add to that, our bodies are fallen in a sinful world, which means physical illness, Our brains are fallen, can be mental illness. Our hearts are fallen, which means we often fall into sin, which can wear us out, producing shame. The author of Hebrews is speaking to God's people who are weary. 
And to add another layer in the context of the author of Hebrews, he is talking to God's people who have been in intense persecution, right? Hebrews uh, chapter 10 speaks to this, that many of them have been imprisoned, that their property has been plundered. So he is speaking to people who are weary. And we may not be there as far as intense persecution, but are we weary at times? This weariness can tempt us to veer off of the race, tempted to give up. What did they need to hear? What do we need to hear? We're called to run a race that God has set before us. We're not called to a rat race where it's all about me, 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 and we're not called to an easy sprint where we barely break a sweat. I don't know of any, any verses in the Bible where the Christian life is referred to as an easy race. But what we are called to, if I can frame it this way, is a pilgrimage, a pilgrim race. A pilgrim is a traveler who is on a journey to a holy place. So a pilgrim race is a traveler who is running with endurance to a holy place. And that is our calling. The author of Hebrews lays this out for us in verses 1 through 11 that I covered last week. If we're going to run with endurance, it's about perspective. Right? Hebrews 1 through 11, again, what's the perspective? First, it's the perspective of the Old Testament saints. They walked, we should say they ran by faith. They understood themselves to be pilgrims. There's a phrase repeated in Hebrews 11 that they understood themselves as strangers and exiles. Right? They traveled by faith. They traveled by hope. They traveled light. They knew that this world is not their home. And the scriptures say they were ones of whom the world was not worthy. See, they looked to a better resurrection, a resurrection to eternal life. They looked to a better city, right? The heavenly city. And so the author of Hebrews points us to the faithfulness of the Old Testament saints. But then even more importantly, then the author of Hebrews points us to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Author points us to Jesus. He endured. He endured. He gave his life for us on the cross. And not only that, he's still at work, seated at the right hand of the Father in glory, in complete authority, ruling and reigning. So the author of Hebrews points us to Jesus to say, he endured, he is fighting for you, continue to endure in the race. And then finally, right before uh, chapter, or right before verse 12, this last section of Hebrews in 5 through 11 talks about the fatherly discipline of God. That discipline, God allows discipline by way of suffering, trials, temptations, right? Persecution. And this discipline is meant for education. God is training us to run with perseverance. And so with that, 
the author is telling us, if we are weary now, or when we are weary, it's about the right perspective. That God is faithful. Faithful to the Old Testament saints. Faithful through Jesus. He is faithful in the midst of our suffering. And so we're called to endure. And so with that, my two questions this morning of our passage are really this. So in light of all that's true in verses 1 through 11, how do we run as pilgrims? How do we run? And then the second question will be, where are we running? And I know you may think that second question is easy. Where are we running? We're running to Jesus. Yes, that is true, but there's a bit more to that, and we'll get there. But first, how do we run? See, in verses 12 through 17, the author lays out pretty much straight application of verses 1 through 11. He says, therefore, verse 12, in light of God's faithfulness, here's what you are to do. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. So this is an expression, like that's not a familiar expression to us. Lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. This is an expression for someone who is discouraged, who is weary. And most likely what the author has in mind is Isaiah 35, verses three and four. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. This is the author appealing to Isaiah to say, don't grow weary and give up. There's hope in God. And then verse 13. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Again, the author here returns to this analogy of a race. Make straight paths for your feet on this race. And this author could have in mind Proverbs 4, 25 through 27. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. The author's encouraging endure, but on a straight path. Don't swerve. No shortcuts. And then verse 14 says, strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So what are the requirements? How does a pilgrim run? With peace in mind, pursuing holiness. And this is an echo throughout the scriptures. The apostle Paul says this in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3, who is quoting the psalmist of Psalm 34, says this, turn away from evil and seek peace and pursue it. Also, this would be an echo of Jesus, his words. Recall the Sermon on the Mount. What's the character of a disciple? Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, or we could say holiness, pursuing peace and holiness. And how important it is for the church to pursue peace with one another and holiness to the Lord. A divided church an unholy church 
will not effectively advance the mission of the gospel. And we all play a part in this. Are we pursuing peace? Are we pursuing holiness? And then verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So see to it together. No one fails to obtain this grace of God. This is community talk. This is the church being tethered together, locking arms with one another. And already the author of Hebrews has given them an encouragement, but really a warning about what it means to pursue the race together. In Hebrews 3, take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by this deceitfulness of sin. That can include exhorting one another every day. It can include a text, right? Hey, thinking about you, praying for you. Right, what does it look like for our lives not just to be caught up in ourselves, but thinking about those who are around us? Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, that day, that's the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And together, as a church, to be sobered by this, to seek to run together in this grace of God. And then we see in this passage, we're called to run together, but to avoid two things. In verse 15, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Okay, if you notice, this root of bitterness is in quotes. What's this a reference to? What's the author after here? This root of bitterness is a quote from Deuteronomy 29, 18 through 20. Uh, 18 through 20. This is where Moses is speaking to the Israelites, the people of God, and he's warning them. And here's what he says. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing bitterness and, or poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Here's the warning. This is a sober warning, not just to the Israelites. It's a sober warning for us of turning, of our hearts turning away from the living God and us chasing other things, seeking to fill our hearts with other things. If I can go back to the rat race analogy, it's chasing cheese. It's chasing worldly cheese. But think of cheese in this way. Do you remember the old cheese whiz? Like cheese in a spray can? Oh, it tasted good, satisfied for a second, but the reality, that stuff will kill you. And that's this point of idolatry. At times we run to things that seem so satisfying, but in the end, it just leads to harm. Our idolatry, the other issue, is it's not just dangerous for ourselves. 
It's dangerous for the Christian community. There's a strong warning about the spread of idolatry in our lives and the way it spreads to others. And so there's just a truth that our righteousness or our lack of righteousness affects the community around us. God calls us to understand that and to pursue after him. And then there's this warning in Deuteronomy, the passage I read. Really, it's Moses mocking. He says, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. The truth is, no, we will not be safe if we walk in the stubbornness of our hearts. And speaking of stubbornness, we have a case study that follows this. It's Esau who walked in the stubbornness of our heart. Verse 16 says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. It's interesting. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have this list of the Old Testament saints. But then where Esau is named is in chapter 12 as a warning to us. See, Esau, this is the story of two brothers. And to make a long story short, this is about Esau and Jacob from Genesis chapter 25. So God made this promise to Abraham. It's a covenant promise that God would be faithful to Abraham and to his descendants. And the blessing of God would be passed through these descendants from Abraham to his son Isaac, then from Isaac to his son Esau, except... Esau traded this birthright, this blessing of God, for a bowl of stew because he was hungry. And so Esau stands as a warning to us, one who puts the needs of his body above the very blessing of God. So if I can sum up verses 12 through 17, I would do it this way. We're called to run with endurance, to not swerve off the path, and there's no shortcuts, okay? So how do we swerve off the path? What does that look like? It's when those difficult and those dark emotions that I named earlier, anger, fear, grief, despair, it's when those become the main narrative of our lives, as opposed to the narrative of God's work in our lives and in this world. It's, it's our faith in God. It's our hope in God. It's our love. It's our love of the things of God. That has to be our main narrative. How do we swerve off the path? When we pursue bitterness and strife, and we just continue to let it fester as opposed to peace. We veer off the path when we pursue sin over holiness. And think about what Jesus said about the thorns. See, see, author of Hebrews is telling us to run with endurance and stay on the path. Jesus talked about veering off the path and, and, and into thorns, so to speak. What are those thorns? It's the cares of the world. It's the false gods. It's the deceitfulness of riches. The truth is, we're all going to die, and we just can't take it with us, right? There's the pleasures. 
Jesus warned of the pleasures. And in this very passage, sexual immorality of Esau is named. It's a reminder, sexual or or sensual desires of what does it mean to walk, to run with faithfulness towards the Lord. And what we're called to is to run with endurance on the path. And and think about it. Every, uh, any marathon or long distance race always has aid stations. What's our aid station? What has God provided for us to run with endurance? If you think about an aid station in a marathon, you've got, you know, water, Gatorade, first aid supplies, whatever you might need. What has God provided for us? What do we have spaced out along this race? Every seven days, we have a Sunday. We have worship. And what does the God provide for us? We refer to it as the ordinary means of grace. What is the grace that God has given to us to run with endurance? We have the word of God. And oh, how we have to be trained to run faithfully by this word. Right? We have prayer. God calls us to depend on him. I think about this at times. We announce every Sunday that we will have prayer with the elders afterwards. And oh, to have a long line all the way out the door because we recognize our need for prayer and recognize our need to be praying for others. God has given us prayer. God has given us the sacraments. We have the table in front of us. Not today, but on many Sundays, we have the table. And on that table is not Gatorade. It's even better. It's bread and juice. Reminds us that Christ endured, that he took care of our sins so that we can endure and that God meets with us, nourishes our faith. Other aid stations. We have Bible studies. We have life groups. The calling is to not neglect our spiritual lives, not to neglect the meeting with one another, but to endure this race together. So no swerving off the path and no shortcuts. Here's the reality. The Christian life involves pain and suffering. There's no shortcuts. But we have to be reminded, again, of where we are going. And this is the rest of this section of chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. This is the author of Hebrews explaining to his disciples or or to the church who is weary, faint-hearted, remember where you are going and let that be of an encouragement to you. And at this point, I'm mostly just going to summarize the rest of this section because I just want to get to the heart of it. Because what the author is going to do is he's going to make a contrast between two mountains. He brings two mountains into focus. One mountain is Mount Sinai. It's not named in this passage, but it's obvious. It's Mount Sinai. The other mountain is Mount Zion. It was Mount Sinai, this first one in verses 18 through 21, where God met with his people in the Old Testament. He met with his people, the Israelites. Right? We see this in the book of Exodus. If you recall, God delivers his people out of Egypt, out of oppression, through the Red Sea, and then he leads them through the wilderness. And where does he lead them to? Leads them to Mount Sinai, 
where he gives them the law. But it's at Mount Sinai that God reveals himself. He manifests his presence to himself, but it was from a distance. God on the top of this mountain and the people below at the base of the mountain. And this was a terrifying display of God's power and his glory. It's recorded in Exodus 19 and 20. What did the Israelites experience at Mount Sinai? The power and majesty of God. The scene on the mountain was this, verse 18. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message may be spoken to them. Just imagine that scene. We can't really imagine it. What they experienced, the majesty and power of God, what they experienced was an unapproachable God. If they came near so much as touched that mountain, that meant death. They experienced terror. The proper response was terror. Even Moses says, I tremble with fear. But the author says, you have not come to that mountain. In verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion. This is a more glorious mountain. Verse 22, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So this is the heavenly city of God that the saints of the Old Testament, the saints in Hebrews 11, what they long for. I love how one commentator put it. The saints of former days were on pilgrimage. They stood on tiptoe, on, on tiptoe, their eyes fixed on the distant horizon. They were looking, longing for this reality. But what the author of Hebrews says of us is you have come, meaning we've arrived. See, this is in Greek in the perfect tense. And my Greek professor pounded into our head, the perfect, test, uh, perfect tense means past action with continuing results. Past action with continuing results. What's the past action? It's the cross. And what's the continuing result? That we have we are secure in Christ. We are secure in God. We have an inheritance. The reality is that we have already, through the blood of Christ, entered into this kingdom. Not in its fullness, but we've entered in. And what does this place have to offer? If you think about it, if you're going to travel to any city, sometimes you may Google and look up what are the attractions they have to offer. You know, Lawrence, Kansas. We're going to, you know, somebody's going to travel. What's there? What are the main attractions? Right? There's downtown Mass Street. There's the university. There's Clinton Lake. There's Grace EPC. You know, let's go, right? So what does this place have to offer? This Mount Zion. And then there's this list that the author gives. There's innumerable angels gathered in celebration all the redeemed from every tongue, tribe, and nation whose names have been written in the book of life. There's God, the judge of all humanity, whom we will meet there. Scriptures say everyone will face the judgment seat, right? But here's the good news. For those who are in Christ, they'll be declared justified because of Christ. 
because he paid the penalty on the cross. And the last one mentioned, certainly not the least, says Jesus, verse 24, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Okay. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Okay, what was wrong with the old covenant in the Old Testament? Well, in two words, God's people. That was what was wrong. At Sinai, Mount Sinai, God established a covenant with his people, his covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will, uh, you will be secure. Just follow me. Obey. But time after time, God was faithful to the covenant, but God's people broke the covenant because of their disobedience. So what did God promise throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament? That he would establish a new covenant, an unbreakable covenant. And when was that fully established? At the cross. When Jesus took care of our sin for once and for all. And then we have this comparison of the uh, blood of Abel. This blood of Abel, this is the story of Cain and Abel. Cain murdering his brother Abel. And what did the blood of Abel cry out for? Justice, right? But then it's compared with the sprinkled blood of Jesus that speaks a better word. And what is this sprinkled word or, or this blood of Jesus, what does it speak to us? It speaks forgiveness, speaks acceptance, it's grace. And because the mediator, Jesus, is with the judge, who is now our father, because of what Jesus has done for us, we're adopted as his sons and daughters. We can draw near to God with confidence so we no longer have to live in fear of Mount Sinai. No, we live with the glorious reality of Mount Zion. That is where we are heading. That, the author of Hebrews is saying, continue to run, don't give up, persevere, endure, look at what God has done, he is faithful, and just think about Mount Zion, the glory that awaits And then verses 25 through 29 holds three commands for us. The first one in verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. This is the command for obedience. And there's a warning with this command that a day is coming when God will shake the heavens and the earth. See, there's this shaking at Mount Sinai, right? That was intense. But there's this promise of an even greater shaking of the heavens and the earth. And that's the day when Jesus returns, the judgment day. And the question is, do our lives, does our obedience reflect this reality that that day is coming? It's the warning that Hebrews holds out for us. And then verse 28 Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That command to be grateful. Why grateful? 
because we can't earn our way into this kingdom, can't buy our way into this kingdom. No, it's a gift. It's a gift by the blood of Christ to receive by faith, just through grace. And are we, does our lives reflect this kind of gratitude for our salvation? And then verse 28, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What is the only proper response to this God of Mount Sinai, who is unchangeable, and this God of Mount Zion? What is the only proper response? It is worship with awe. For God is a consuming fire. Author of Hebrews adds that at the end of this chapter. For God is a consuming fire. And he's referencing Deuteronomy 4, reminding his hearers to not run towards false gods, to not chase the worldly cheese, so to speak. For God is a consuming fire. And, and here's what one commentator, what he says. He who descended on Mount Sinai in fire and spoke to his people from the midst of that fire still consumes in the white heat of his purity everything that is unworthy of himself. So on one hand, is this passage a warning? Yes, we have a God that is not to be trifled with. But is this passage an encouragement? Yes, if we are in Christ, if we have bowed our knees and our hearts to Christ as our Lord, as our Savior, his shed blood covers our sins. Because of that, we are already citizens of Zion. We're just awaiting in its fullness. And as we wait, what does God call us to? To continue on the pilgrim, pilgrimage, to run with endurance. That is our calling. No swerving, right? To remain steadfast on the path with our eyes fixed on Jesus. No swerving, no shortcuts. Life is going to be hard. But God is faithful. Calls us in the midst of the suffering and trials to run with endurance. And to that end, Let's pray together. Father, this is our prayer that together as the church we would run, we would endure together. And thank you for the witness that you have given us, the witness of the Old Testament saints. You were faithful to them. They sought to be faithful to you. Thank you for their lives. A testimony that they saw themselves as pilgrims, as strangers, as exiles, longing for you more than the world. So thank you. Pray that that would strengthen us. And for Jesus, Lord, we give you thanks. That he is the founder and perfecter of our faith that begins and ends with him, that he endured the cross, that we, we have claim of eternal life because of Christ. Thank you that he is seated at your right hand, ruling and reigning over us. Thank you for the hope that we have. 
Lord, even thank you for the discipline that you bring into our lives, the trials, the struggles, because we know and your scriptures tell us that God loves those whom he disciplines. So we hold that by faith. Do pray that as a church that we would pursue peace, that we would pursue holiness, that when we are weary, we would not swerve, remain steadfast. You would strengthen us. And for the needs in our congregation, Lord, we pray um, for celebration on one hand for Josh and Jenny Dar, for the birth of their son, Jonathan Paul, who uh, was recently in the NICU but is out and doing well. So Lord, we just give you thanks that and celebrate with the Dars the birth of their, of their son. But also, Lord, our hearts are heavy. There's many needs in our congregation. And pray this morning for Kathy Rockman, who, uh, whose sister died this past week. But thank you that in Kathy's words, she was a kind, gracious, godly woman. So Lord, I pray that... Uh, Kathy, as she grieves, Gary, as they grieve together and with family as they grieve, that they would also celebrate the hope that is in you. We also pray for Jacob and Brittany Lauks, for Gary, uh, Jacob's father, who had heart surgery, but it wasn't successful, and they have to reevaluate for next steps. Pray that you would give them wisdom. Pray for the expertise of doctors. I pray for Gary, that you would be with them, for Jacob, for Brittany, their family, as they face just this difficult and uncertain time. Lord, we pray for Vaughn Heck, who continues to struggle with severe shortness of breath, fatigues, headaches, muscle pain. Lord, whether, and they're trying to discern what it is, whether it's the long haul COVID symptoms or something else. Lord, this has been going on, as you know, for a while. And the doctors are. Um, I'm not sure, but we know you are. And so I pray that you would bring an answer, that you would heal Vaughn. Lord, our prayer also for, Cal, for Calvin Clements, who in the football game on Friday broke his leg. I want to pray for him as, as they are awaiting treatment um, on Monday to know what to do. I pray for healing, pray for pain, uh, and pray just uh, against discouragement. And so, Lord, you know the other needs in our congregation. We give you thanks that you are steadfast with us and are a God who provides. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.